My children like to tell jokes at the dinner table. A recent and highly repeated favorite. Dad, why did the chicken cross the playground? The answer, to get to the other slide. The other slide. So many treasured guests this weekend here for the friendship tournament. You've crossed the playground of North America to come to this place, and we are so delighted that you are here to play in this neck of God's great playground, and that you are here for a few moments now in this sacred holy space uh, to worship and consider the goodness of Jesus Christ. We've also throughout this week, as Patty mentioned, been on a journey, no guts, no glory, tracking the movements of Joseph. As God moves him across a different playground from a position of moral weakness to the new land of moral strength. A bit of a review for the many of you who were not a part of the week. On Monday, we explored the guts to disrobe, that in fact it is what is on the inside that really counts even more than our exterior accomplishments. On Tuesday, the guts to be real, to live with integrity, this sweatshirt representing that we want Walla Walla University to be a place of incredible honesty and integrity. The next day, we turn to the guts to run. Joseph says no to Potiphar's wife, the power of saying no. Here, Rosa Parks, do you remember that no? It changed the world. The guts to gut it out, a reflection on endurance came on Thursday. The guts to seize the moment, God's opportunities in front of us on Friday. And then last night, the guts to love, the guts to treasure people over power. And finally today, the guts to believe belief. Yogi Berra, the Hall of Fame baseball player, died a few days ago at the age of 90. More famous than playing baseball, of course, he was known for what he said. Memorable Barraisms, colloquial expressions that lack logic, are now countless, and many of them are just attributed to Barra, even if he never actually said them. And so he put it perfectly. I never said most of the things I said. You'll be familiar with uh, some of the others. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> or this one, you can observe a lot just by watching. <laughs> or this famous one, it's like deja vu all over again. <laughs> or this one, no one goes there nowadays, it's too crowded. Or this famous, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. <laughs> or this one, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. But most famously, oh, you know it whether you're a baseball fan or not. It ain't over till it's over. It ain't over until it's over. 
This adage has become a rallying cry for sports teams. When you are down three touchdowns in the fourth quarter, when you have five game points to fight off in a match-deciding volleyball game, when you are down a goal in soccer with less than five minutes to play, it ain't over until it's over. Things may look bleak, but don't give up. Joseph is now at the end of his life. We pick up the story, Genesis chapter 50 beginning in verse 24. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph, at the end of the story, gives a bit of a, it ain't over until it's an over speech. The key verse, 25, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. There is hope for you after I die, Joseph says. My death ain't the end for you. There is hope for me after I die. My death ain't the end for me. It ain't over till it's over. What did Joseph believe about the afterlife? It's hard to know. Ancient Egyptian thought was complex, varied, obscure. Judaism, the idea of the afterlife, not historically emphasized beliefs vary from no afterlife to the shadowy existence in some world to come. But seen through a Christian lens, Joseph's story has much significant power for us. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 22, by faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Just phrases later, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, including Joseph, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The purpose of Joseph's story is to get to the story of Jesus. The purpose of the whole Bible is to get us to the story of Jesus. The purpose of Joseph's deathbed faith is to get us to now consider the life and death and the life after death according to to Jesus. Take a look at the text again. The story of Joseph pushes us. Now we learn, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Number one, he endured the cross, a physical death. Number two, scorning its shame, a phrase most certainly referring to the resurrection. And finally, he sat down. Yes, he sat down the right hand of the Father, authority in heaven. How does this help us? Consider Him. 
so that you will not grow weary and not lose heart in matters of death. It ain't over until it's over. How do we strengthen then our convictions? How do we grow our guts of belief in this great hope in the future? I believe there are three critical focal points that require our continual and intensified attention. There are three days. First, yesterday. Yesterday. A focus on history, the history of Jesus Christ. I ask you this morning, how much time do you spend reading the historical documents that speak of Jesus? These documents all pointing to that great week, the week that Jesus died, was raised from the grave, and ascended then to the Father just weeks later. How much attention do you give? It all builds to the resurrection, doesn't it? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If there's no resurrection, he says, Christianity is foolishness. Are you aware of this? We read in the first century about the explosive growth of the Christian movement. All historians agree. Whether you are Christian, theist, atheist, every serious historian recognizes there was a movement, and it was called Christianity, and it exploded in growth. The question is why? Paul says it's all about the resurrection. When you read the historical documents, they don't say Jesus had some great teachings, or he performed some great miracles, or even his death on a cross. Lots of people were dying on crosses in the Roman Empire. No, the trigger that launched the great movement of Christianity was a conviction on the part of the early Christians that Jesus had died, was buried, and was physically raised from the grave. Make no mistake. This is historical fact. Well, then you can start to argue, well, were all of these people, by the hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and then more, rich and poor, international, from all kinds of different places in life, were they all just making it up? Likely not, for they were willing to give their lives for this conviction. Were they all fooled? It seems rather impossible given the breadth of this conviction. When we dive into the history of Jesus and we understand how the Christian movement exploded based on a conviction of the resurrection, the only logical conclusion is that Jesus, in fact, was physically raised from the grave. And so the great historian N.T. Wright observes that this is the only way forward for us as historians. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is the point beyond all other points, his death and his resurrection. Philip Yancey, as he reflects on the story of Jesus, takes what I consider to be a fascinating tack. He just observes what Jesus has to say about God, about the Father in heaven, and this leads Yancey to the conclusion 
that resurrection in the end must be. Notice Yancey's words. He says, I believe in the resurrection primarily because I have gotten to know God through Jesus. I know that God is love because of Jesus, and I also know that we human beings want to keep alive those who we love. I do not let my friends die. They live on in my memory and my heart long after I have stopped seeing them. For whatever reasons human freedom lies at the core, I imagine God allows a planet where a man dies scuba diving in the prime of his life, a woman dies in a fiery crash on the way to a church missions conference. But I believe. If I did not believe this, I would not believe in a loving God. But I believe that God is not satisfied with such a blighted planet. Divine love will find a way to overcome. Death be not proud, wrote John Donne. God will not let death win. Yancey says, the vision that Jesus has of God as one who loves and our understanding of the very love that we have in our hearts for our loved ones, resurrection is a natural and potent conclusion. It ain't over until it's over. And so I ask you this morning once again, how are you on the discipline of considering yesterday, pouring yourself into those rich documents, that incredible story that reminds us that Jesus was raised from the grave? Christianity, unlike all the other religions that have ideas about the afterlife, Christianity's conception of what is to come is based in a historical story, an example. Jesus, the text says, the first fruits of a whole lot of what's to come yesterday. Second, the discipline of living today. Eugene Peterson says that we ought to practice resurrection. Let me say that again, that we ought to practice resurrection. Jesus has given us His Holy Spirit, and we ought to be in the business of helping raise people up. One day in 1881, Robert Louis Stevenson stopped a man from beating a dog. The man objected, it's not your dog. Stevenson replied, it's God's dog, and I'm here to protect it. Resurrection. My brothers and sisters, these are God's trees out there. God's air, God's water, God's streets, God's building, God's matter, all of it. And most of all, we, all of us here and everyone everywhere, God's children. Anne Lamott reports on a story. A few years ago, she says there was a huge and devastating fire on a long, majestic ridge that runs for miles out to the bay. Four older teenage boys from the town had camped at Mount Vision overnight, illegally, had built a campfire, buried it under dirt when they left in the morning, and caused a fire that destroyed 12,000 acres of wilderness area in nearly 50 homes. Helicopters saved the town with water from the bay. The water was dropped on the pine forest between the town and the burning ridge, but the loss of wildlife was unimaginable. Birds, deer, coyote, bobcats, mountain lions, beavers, 
It was as if a bomb had fallen. Columnist John Carroll at the San Francisco Chronicle published a letter from a reader a few weeks after the fire. The writer described the heroism of the firefighters, the community's round-the-clock efforts to save whatever could be saved, the generosity and compassion we've come to expect after natural and man-made catastrophes, the coming together. The four teenage boys who had accidentally started the fire turned themselves in early on with their parents beside them. Lamont says, how do you jiggle a miracle out of rage? Gasoline is terror, ash, grief, and teenage boys. A firefighter had written a letter to the local paper, which the Chronicle letter writer described about how carefully the boys had tried to put out the fire, though they had extinguished the flames, embers were still burning underground. The boys hadn't known this could be a fire danger. They left. After that, even as townspeople continued to share their loss and pain, they also told stories of their worst teenage mistakes and transgressions. She says, we rarely think our way out of these tight, dark places. Sometimes, though, a community will take action together, and somehow something gives. A picnic was held to honor the firefighters. The whole town turned out. The president of the board of firefighters gave a speech. But at the end, he digressed from what you might have expected him to say. He talked about how in ancient times, people who did damage to a town were sent to live outside its walls, beyond the pale or boundary, beyond community, beyond inclusion and protection. He mentioned the four young men who had started the Mount Vision fire and that he had heard that their families were thinking of moving away. He thought the town should make it clear to the families that they should stay, that they were wanted, that they were needed. There was sustained applause. People whose houses had burned down came up to the speaker to say they agreed with this plan. The town wanted these young men inside the pale, inside the ring of protection. The author of the letter to the Chronicle wrote, so what seems to me to be happening is that this community, which had just fought so stubbornly to save itself from a holocaust, has turned almost without missing a beat to try to save the future of these four young men. Lamont's concluding comment, if there is a God, and most things, days I think there is, he does not need us to bring hope and new life back into our lives, but he keeps letting us help. And why? He doesn't need us. We aren't adding any strength to his, for he already has infinite strength. Why? I suppose that the practice of resurrection of bringing folks back from dark places somehow builds confidence in our own spirits for the great resurrection day to come. Practice resurrection. I think we need a, a physical example, some piece of imagery to uh, understand how our present life relates to the whole. And so uh, Celeste, Amanda, Maddie, and Kaylee are going to help me for a second with this rope. So if you would come forward and can imagine that this climbing rope represents the continuum of the history of the world, of 
the historical time of the entire universe. And from a Christian perspective, of course, this is what we believe. This is what we know to be true. Give that a good yank. There you go. So this is it. This is eternity. Now I want you to imagine that where I stand, and here I pull out a red ribbon, this little piece of the rope represents the short time that we have on earth. Can you see that okay? There we go. Now, let me say something. The Bryan family, we love, for those who are Adventists in the room, I'm going to use a little bit of Adventist language, uh, the Bryan family, we love the health message. That is, we live pretty healthy, we, my wife cooks healthy, we eat healthy, we exercise. We think that's a very good thing. And the statistics say, like, you get an extra 72 months or something on average for doing all those things. So that's pretty good. I'm all for it. But that's not the health message I'm really interested in. I'm interested in the health message that says you get to live forever. Now that's something to buy into. My brothers and sisters, we have such short time on this earth where we currently stand in this era of sin. We think about all that we pour ourselves into, what really matters in this particular moment in a very, very long life that Jesus has given us. What are you investing in this short moment? May I suggest practice resurrection. May that be the mission statement of your life and mine. The only function I have for the short amount of time I have on this earth, I shall practice resurrection. I shall be a bringer of grace and of life and of joy to everyone. First, because it blesses a whole lot of people. But second, because every time I pour into this present moment resurrection, it builds my confidence in resurrection to come. Thank you so much, my sisters. That was very, very helpful this morning. How do we gain strength? How do we grow in our guts for this great conviction about the future? Number one, yesterday. We pour ourselves into our history, reminded time and time again that Jesus rose from the grave. Second, today. We orient around the idea that we shall participate in acts of resurrection in large measure because it builds our own conviction. Finally, day number three, tomorrow. Tomorrow. This is a Seventh-day Adventist church. This is an Adventist church. We believe in the Advent, the second coming of Jesus. And so we invest quite a lot of time thinking and dreaming and wondering about that great event. I want to read to you the observation of Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola in their book, Jesus, A Theography. They write, if we know nothing else about biblical prophecy, we know this. The fulfillment fleshes out the details. Christ's first coming contained many surprises, even among those who studied the prophecies of the First Testament. We believe the same will be true for His second coming. It will contain surprises for even the most learned biblical scholars. 
In this regard, we agree with Karl Barth, who said, we cannot fathom the second advent of Jesus Christ, and we stammer when we try to speak of it. We stammer when we try to speak of it. It is so amazing, we don't even have words. Have you ever stammered when someone so beautiful stands in front of you and you have no words? Have you ever stammered when in front of you is a delicious piece of chocolate cheesecake and you look down at it and you have no words? Have you ever stammered when you early in the morning look out at those majestic Cascade Mountains backlit by the sun and you don't even have words? Have you ever considered Jesus and you are so overwhelmed by His grace and His love for you, your worship, silence? You stammer, even thinking to speak of Him. The second coming of Jesus Christ. Wow. What words. Oh, how beautiful that day. This afternoon, this afternoon we grieve and we celebrate the life of Caitlin Luce Wilson, our sister in Christ who, who died far too young. I've gained permission to share something she wrote just weeks ago and published widely on the internet, something that she wrote amid pain, dealing with the ravages and the ugliness of disease. Caitlin's words, God has some deep cleansing for me to prepare me to be able to live in a perfect place for eternity and witness to the rest of the universe what He did for us here on earth. I would rather endure this experience and be in heaven than live lukewarm the rest of my life and be surprised on that day to be unknown to the God of the universe. If I am meant to be alive for such a time as this, and my life is shorter than I had anticipated. I will search for His will and what I can do for Him now and know that if I fall, I fall into His arms and the next face I see will be Jesus. And then Caitlin places this verse, Psalm 118, verse 17. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. I will not die but live. I will not die but live. I will not die but live.
We've considered many images this week of great courage. Let's add one more here. Jesus says, think of me like a hen. I want to gather all of my sweet chicks under my wings. It ain't over, friends, until it's over. I believe. Do you? I believe. Do you? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.